Welcome to DLI FLC's new podcast we're calling DLI Lingo. We're doing a six-part series called Oh, the Places You Can Go with DLI. We'll be showcasing places DLI alumni have gone and things they've done since they graduated. Obviously, we want to talk about what language learning can do for your future, but mostly, this is a message of hope for our students. They're learning languages at an extremely fast pace, and it can be pretty stressful for them. So this is what we have to say to you, DLI student drinking water from a fire hose. The language might not all make sense now. You might feel like you're drowning, but you're not alone. These are stories about people who felt like they were drowning too, but they kept at it and went on to have fantastic experiences, both in the military and after. If you keep pushing through, that could be you too. So don't give up. We're rooting for you. My name is Henry, and the middle name is Kazmer, and the last name is Clappett. Henry Clappett didn't start his military career as a linguist. Clappett joined the Army in 1948. It's a career move that spanned 20 years, two conflicts, and countless skirmishes. I was only 18 years old at the time. I, at that time, I still needed my mother's signature to get in the service, and, uh, which was a long time ago, 1948. From his home in Carmel, California, Henry talked about his time in the service. It was predominantly infantry, but with a few twists and turns. I was in the ordinance for a while. Before I went into the service, I was working in a carburetor replacement center as a mechanic. When I uh, put that on my uh, resume to join the Army, they automatically put me in the ordinance. Shortly after that, they started to send me in to infantry units, and from then on in, I was infantry. If you're keeping track, that means Henry was an infantryman during the Korean War, which started just two years after he joined. If you're doing the historical math, you'll notice he was still in when the Vietnam War started. I had done a year and, and some months in uh, Korea, and uh, I had also done a Vietnam, which was a tour of duty there, and then I retired from there. Why am I telling you about an infantryman when this is a podcast about linguists? Because in 1959, Henry decided to broaden his skills. Well, I was first sergeant uh, of a company in uh, Fort Orr, and uh, later on I became an operations sergeant. I checked with the uh, intelligence officer and asked him uh, how hard would it be if I go to DLI. And he checked on it and he said, we can put in the paperwork, what do you want to do? I says, well, I put in for Polish. Polish was my second language at the time, but when the orders came down, uh, they took me as Russian. After graduating from DLI in 1960, or the Army Language School, as it was known at the time, Henry's orders were to join the 6th Infantry in Berlin. To understand what was going on in Germany at that time, we're going to have to delve a little bit into World War II history. 
As a consequence of the defeat of Nazi Germany, the country was divided right down the middle, east and west. The Soviet Union took East Germany, and then France, Britain, and the United States split West Germany. The city of Berlin, 90 miles deep inside East German territory, had been split the same way, East and West. East Berlin, under Soviet occupation, was declared the capital of German Democratic Republic, while again, France, Britain, and the United States divided West Berlin. The Berlin Wall didn't exist when Henry arrived in Germany. In the 15 years since Berlin was divided in 1945, the tension had only grown. East Germany, by that point, flat out denied rumors of a wall going up. Until August 12, 1961, when the mayor of East Berlin, without warning and without telling the public, signed an order to close the border and erect the wall that would go into effect at midnight that night. line of demarcation in the Cold War lies in Berlin. West Berlin, with its burgeoning prosperity, is a thorn in the side of the Reds. Refugees from the East escaped by the tens of thousands until the communists, in desperation, threw up their wall of hate to seal off the border. In a decade, more than four million East Germans fled their homes, causing a drain on communist Germany's economy that was called no longer tolerable. Their answer, the wall. The wall was was just really a, almost an overnight thing. They, uh, they were out there with just chunks of bricks and, and things like that and uh, cementing them together and, and they just made little sections where you could, uh, people could go in and out. Yes, the Berlin Wall went up almost overnight, but there had been signs of problems for East Berlin and the Soviets long before. You can't point to one thing and say, this was the reason the Soviets kept people in Berlin. There are plenty of things that went into it, but one of the things we can say as the biggest contributing factor was the brain drain. The four million people that left East Germany represented almost 20% of their population. That loss was disproportionately among the young, educated professionals, meaning teachers, lawyers, doctors, engineers, people with education that were driving the force of growth and promise for the future. The brain drain was dramatic. With the Berlin Wall up, the escape to freedom for East Berliners was cut off. Before the wall went up, there had been many ways to get from East to West Berlin. People could go back and forth freely between the two sides. With the construction of the wall, East Germany essentially cut off 32 railway lines, three highways, and hundreds of secondary roads and lanes. Checkpoint Charlie was this little wooden shack that stood at the end of Friedrichstrasse. It was put up on the West Berlin side shortly after the wall went up. Checkpoint Charlie was in the American-occupied section of the city that was just a few feet away from this hulking German checkpoint called Brandenburg Gate with its stone columns and gigantic looming height. Checkpoint Charlie became an icon of resistance to the Berlin Wall because of its temporary simplicity. It said, in essence, that the wall was not a permanent or legitimate border and therefore wouldn't be up for very long. Here's Henry explaining things while he shows photos of Checkpoint Charlie. At Checkpoint Charlie and the Berlin sector border of Frederikstrasse, that was the name of the street here, mm -hmm. Frederikstrasse. And that was the only route that the Russians could use to come into Berlin. And it was manned by us. The British had a sector up in their area, too, similar to this, 
and they would not let the Russians go through there. Everybody kind of got him through one area. When Henry got to Berlin, his job was as first sergeant. He didn't think he'd be using his language much. But Henry found himself being called to put his Russian to good use. And at times I would be the interpreter for the uh, provost marshal's office when he would discuss things with the Soviets on, in East Berlin. We would go there and I would be interpreter for him there. And uh, then we'd come back and discuss it. And uh, the colonel would look at me and says, okay, clap it, go put on your blue suit. And off we'd go when I was interpreting for the State Department or someplace like that. Shortly after the wall went up, there was an incredibly tense standoff between the Americans and the Soviets at Checkpoint Charlie. Tanks from both sides were staring the other down with live ammunition loaded for nearly 24 hours. Thankfully, they both ended up backing away peacefully, but the results were that escorts were used to cross the border on both sides. The problem was when they decided they were going to come through with armored vehicles, and uh, the regular vehicles were uh, regular trucks and everything else. The West Berliners would gather up on the streets and throw rocks at them. Apparently they hit a few that uh, did some damage. They started to uh, bring those big uh, personnel carriers through Charlie Checkpoint without any uh, escort at all, and it got dangerous. It got very dangerous, and uh, from then on in, we told them that they could not go through unless they came with an escort. From that point, Henry was an escort for the Soviets. The way Germany was split after World War II can get confusing without seeing a map. Believe me, I had to pour over several maps to get this. So follow me. To understand where Henry was escorting the Soviets, picture Germany. Now, picture Germany split in half with the eastern section going to the Soviets. Imagine Berlin, 90 miles deep inside East Germany, roughly in the middle. Now close in on Berlin. Imagine it is also being split down the middle, east and west, with the Soviets again getting the eastern section. The Berlin Wall went up along that middle dividing line. Checkpoint Charlie and East Germany's looming Brandenburg Gate were situated roughly in the middle. Henry escorted Soviet troops that would transit from Checkpoint Charlie three miles through West Berlin to the other side, where Helmstead Gate led to the rest of East Germany. And then he would escort Soviets back through West Berlin to Checkpoint Charlie, where he would then go on through the Brandenburg Gate to East Berlin. Each one of us would lead a convoy maybe once or twice a week and because they, they just would send, them, send the troops across just to keep the Autobahn open between the two sectors. That was the only way <laughs> you get through. Free passage, and that's under quotation marks, between East and West Berlin was a stipulation in the treaty signed after World War II. The Allies wanted to make sure that the roads remained open, and so the tit-for-tat strategy continued for years. It got very friendly with the Soviets after a while. We would. Uh, it was very difficult for them in the summertime to come with those uh, SUVs because they would uh, sit in there we would hold them up for a long time and they would roast in those things because it was very hot. Uh, armored personnel carrier is not the coolest play, uh, vehicle in the world. After that confrontation things eventually cooled down and to Henry's mind it was the interpreters that helped. 
once we put the Russian interpreters in effect there, things changed. And every time there would be a company of uh, infantry company they'd send across. Then they decided they were going to play games with the Soviets by putting a Russian interpreter on there, which was worked fine because at one time uh, it was uh, the Russians ran the checkpoints and they w pretty much told the commander of the convoy what they wanted to do, to unload. He presented them with papers, a list of all the people that were on there, how many were on there, and so forth. And they would still make them all unload and count them. Once the Russian interpreters would come, were there, they'd tell them no. You got the paperwork, that's it. Henry was able to build a rapport with the Soviets, especially those at Helmstead Gate that led to the Soviet-occupied East Germany. Here's Henry telling a story about when he would escort convoys there. I became very friendly with a uh, colonel at uh, the checkpoint at Helmstead, which is just, as you cross it, you were in the western sector. We would look at the trucks and everything else, and there would be the GIs looking at uh, girly magazines and so forth. He uh, asked me one time if I could ask the GIs to give him the girly magazines, which I did, and I'd have them a stack and give it to him. He would take them to pass them off to the Russian soldiers. <laughs> But he got it got to the point that we would we would kind of put on a little show of like he was demanding something and he make me uh, ask me to come with him at at his office and we'd go to the office and uh, we'd sit down and he would open up a bottle of vodka and we'd sit there for a little bit and then I'd get on my merry way again and that was it. Henry was in Berlin until his tour ended in 1962. After that, though he stayed in until his retirement in 1968, Henry never used his Russian again for the military. The Berlin Wall, of course, was up for considerably longer. It didn't come down until 1990. But that's another story for another linguist to tell. Mm -hmm.